Hello, welcome to the Cities on the Frontline Urban Exchange Podcast. We've created this space for city leaders and urban practitioners to come together for a few minutes to share the opportunities and challenges they are grappling with as they drive transformative change in cities today. I'm Lauren Sorkin, Executive Director of the Resilient Cities Network. We are a city-led network of nearly 100 city members around the world, working to build urban resilience that enables cities to thrive no matter the shock or stress faced. And I'm pleased you've joined us for this episode hosted with our partner, Smart Cities World, with sponsorship from our friends and co-conspirators in urban resilience, the World Bank. Cities are truly on the front line of delivering a future that is resilient, sustainable, economically robust, healthy and equitable for all of us. It is no small charge. At the Resilient Cities Network, we provide forums like this to bring together knowledge, practice and partnerships that support and encourage city leaders and urban practitioners in their efforts. Now, over to my co-host, Paul Wilson, chair of the Smart Cities World Advisory Board. Thanks, Lauren. It's great to be doing this with you. I'm chair of Smart Cities World's Advisory Board, and every year more than a million people read Smart Cities World and 30,000 people are members gaining access to special reports and content. Members include officials from more than a thousand cities with new members every single week. And in the day job, I'm Chief Business Officer at Connected Places Catapult, the UK's innovation accelerator for cities, transport and places. Together, we're sharing ideas that solve urban challenges, bringing people together from the public, private, academic, and not-for-profit sectors. Our Urban Exchange podcast will take us around the world to meet people working on the front line. In this second episode of Cities on the Frontline Urban Exchange, Lauren Sorkin catches up with the city of Rotterdam's mayor, Ahmed Abutaleb, known as a calm and patient mayor who cares both about the most vulnerable in society and the importance of a thriving, sustainable economy. Mayor Abutaleb has been named as the best mayor in the world for 2021 by the London City Mayors Foundation. It's a great pleasure to have him with us. Hi, Mayor Abutaleb. Welcome to the Urban Exchange. Thank you so much for making the time to speak with us. Good to see you. As a leader of the Resilient Cities Network board, we're really fortunate to have you at the helm. Why are you committed to advancing urban resilience, not just in your city of Rotterdam, but in the Netherlands as well as globally? Well, in fact, it's working on resiliency, not only working to strengthen the city and to make the city less vulnerable for the big changes in the weather systems for rainfall or droughts. I discovered last 12 years working on this theme that it's also the new economy. It's also the new jobs. And that's really when we talk about with people that are not really keen on working on climate and and change, they are negative sometimes on climate issues and climate-related measures. But when you tell them that that's the new economy and that's also the new jobs, then suddenly they wake up. Ah, that's a new approach. I have not seen it that, that way. And that means 
you make more more friends. In my belief in the political system of the Netherlands, friends to the right, because a lot of these politicians are uh, were, well, I should say, in the beginning negative about leaving the age of fossil fuels and moving towards uh, uh, innovation and technology, but also investing in new technology, investing in dikes and levees, in investing in systems in the city that make a city absorbing more water because they think it's oh, costly and why should we do that? Let's put our money somewhere else. But suddenly they discover it's the new economy, it's the new jobs, and you will lose no jobs. If you create more jobs, then they get in, in another mood and so you make more friends of that. It's, it's sage advice, isn't it? That if you want to reach out to the unconverted and really reach them with a message of resilience to actually talk about it in that economic vocabulary. It is about the new economy. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm a Muslim and, and there is a, a sentence in the Quran, which is uh, to me a very a fascinating sentence that I uh, always recall when I do my politics um, with people that are really difficult to convince from, from things. And that says, Talk to them with the language they understand. If the climate is not the argument and the economy is the argument, here's the economy's argument. Impossible to do business if you can't open your shops if the streets are flooded. Impossible to get online and do business if the internet is down. So these are very critical realities that we're facing. Yeah. When you talk about the new approach, then you should also underline the truth, which is, yes, indeed, we will destroy some working opportunities. Yes, uh, some uh, sectors will disappear. But the, uh, the number of new sectors that we create through innovation and through guided investments uh, in, 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 in the new era, that will be more than the number of jobs that we destroy. That's so a matter of mathematics. And if this is the line of uh, uh, the line is going down with the jobs that we destroy and you design in the same graph the number of jobs that we create, you will see that the number of jobs that we create through innovation and through, um, uh, through in investing in, in climate-related economic issues will be more than the number of jobs that we destroy. But we indeed we destroy jobs. Be honest about that. Uh, it's certainly important to be honest as we're building partnerships and, and coalitions. Earlier this year, Mayor Abu Talib, you were presenting at the Thousand Cities Adapt Now and the Climate Adaptation Summit that was hosted in the Netherlands earlier this year. And at our cities, along with partners at Global Center for Adaptation, the World Resources Institute and UN Habitat, joined to support this coalition and, and really helped to foster its initiation. Why would you say that coalitions like this are important to making advances on global challenges that we face? It's not only the coalitions are important, uh, we need also coalitions of big players in the economy in the world. So we need the Indias of this world, we need the China of this world, we need South Africa of this world, we need the US of this world, we need the Brazil, uh, Brazil of this world, because they are the major players. The Netherlands is a small country. We are uh, working on our scale and our level 
to be the most innovative uh, country in the world to design technologies. But we we have a, a small scale to really realize a big change. Uh, so we need the big players in the world to collaborate. If you present them working systems, working technology, a proven technology, and they are aware that implementing this will means that the wealth in your country will increase, not decrease, but you will create new opportunities. Uh, it's really important to make more uh, friends and uh, to organize a larger collaboration, a larger coalition to do to do the work. We're happy to host the uh, Center on Adaptation for the for Mr. Ban Ki Moon to be uh, to be our leader here. We will support him where possible to gather knowledge, to enhance knowledge, to disseminate knowledge. But the Netherlands is a small country to reach a big change on, on the international level. That's why partnering with, with others and coalitions with other, mainly with big countries, is really important. Somewhere you have to take the lead. It's not, a, not an issue if a small country takes the lead. But finally, yeah, we need the G7, uh, we need uh, China, we need Russia. Uh, all of them must move towards this new th way of thinking, uh, knowing that uh, even in Siberia, the rising temperatures caused a lot of damage uh, recently to the nature and um, caused uh, flooding and caused um, uh, a lot of uncertainties for, for citizens who were used to a life with ice for some nine or ten months a year. Absolutely. There's so much change and, and baked into what you just talked about. We're just weeks away from COP26 in, in Glasgow, which many have referenced as the most pivotal in generations in terms of a, a meeting of a global convening to advance climate action. And we know that as a result of historic and ongoing emissions, a certain amount of change is going to happen in the planetary ecosystem, as you've just said, even in Siberia. And so change is inevitable. So and in what ways can we accelerate the action to, to really pivot this narrative to continue at pace for net zero while we elevate the urgency of resilience building and climate adaptation? Some things happen in the world, not because politician wants them to happen, but because civilization is dictating that it happens. Uh, we left the Stone Age behind us, not because there was a lack of stones. We did that because civilizations wanted to move forward. And then we entered the Steam Age, and then we entered the Electricity Age. And we're now entering a new era. And, and that's uh, inevitable. It's going to happen. Mr. Trump was arguing that he will defend the American classic car industry. Um, saying I will not let it to go down. And finally, it will go down, whether Mr. Trump wants it or not, because civilization is dictating that these cars using false airfoils will not have the future. And that is a sense that happens in, in the world. And not a world leader can stop it from, from happening. It's going to happen. The question is, what is the velocity of it? How, how long would it take this transition? Would it take uh, 25 years, or 50 years? What politicians can do is make it happen smoothly, uh, organizing equality, leaving nobody behind. 
And we had on the cameras the big um, drama in Germany and in, in northern Belgium, northeast Belgium and southern Netherlands uh, during the last flooding. Uh, the damage, I think, in Germany was about 55 billion euros and a lot of casualties or whole villages disappeared from, uh, from Earth. But uh, weeks later, we had a huge flooding in the Sudan, leaving a lot of casualties um, um, without food and shelter. I was not on any television except Al Jazeera television. And I was lucky watching that channel once on a Sunday to see the pictures. And we have a lot of countries in the world uh, that are facing not an excess of water, but a shortage of water, drinking water, a big challenge for, for farmers. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, a big city in India uh, was uh, without water. A big city in South Africa was without water. And I think it's not only being resilient in terms of facing a surplus of water, but also dealing with shortages of water. And I think this change is going to happen. Politicians cannot stop it, but they can, if they collaborate, they can facilitate it and make it to happen smoothly with equal access for all citizens, which is really important also from my political point of view. That role of, of cities in sharing and advancing that kind of knowledge and calling attention to the issues of equity uh, and of inclusion is, is so critical. Ahead of COP, we've been talking a lot about what cities' role is in delivering and even said, you know, while nations pledge, it will be cities that must deliver. That was something that was shared just recently in Smart Cities World open letter to international leaders around COP26. And we've seen in the network Rotterdam playing a very specific role, sharing technologies with cities in India and, and elsewhere to help them to really deal with resilience challenges. So what role would you like to see Rotterdam continuing to play and other cities playing on the back of COP26? What kinds of decisions would you like to see coming out of the meeting? I think that it would be very important if the meeting will endorse that the level to deliver is the cities. Uh, the cities are hosting more than 50% of world population and our number of inhabitants is increasing. We have the issues, we have the dangers, but we have also the knowledge to do the work. What we need is collaboration with national and federal levels to have enough funding to do the work. Last week, we had a dinner here with uh, four mayors and the prime minister of the Netherlands uh, talking about these uh, issues. And indeed, we are moving, and I'm, I'm hopeful about that, to join forces between the, the local layer in the large cities, mainly in the Netherlands, for major cities, with national cabinets to do, to do the work. Um, there will be investments of billions of euros, for instance, in our port, the port of Rotterdam, to collect CO2 emissions to make it liquid and bring it through a pipeline to store it in the North Sea, which is a major decision that will be done within really a couple of months. And there will be a financial support for, from that coming from the national government. That's really the way to do it. The local knowledge, the local willingness to deliver in coalition with national or federal governments. And that's, I think, the, the, the line. 
The Dutch government is aware, for instance, that they have to deliver on reduction of CO2 emissions. They are forced by the judge to do that. And they know that the place to do that is the port of Rotterdam. We are a very nice city, um, hardworking city, but also a big polluter because we have five major refineries in the port and a lot of petrochemical industry. So the place to do it is here. We have the knowledge, the willingness, the city council, the mayor. We want to do that together with national government. And I think that's the way to do it. But if you have in a, like in a, in a number of countries a conflict model between the mayors um, and the national governments because there is a certain level of competition in political terms between mayors and sometimes leaders of governments, then it's not going to work. Uh, so it's really important that the, you have a, um, a kind of a peaceful situation between cities and federal governments to do the work. Uh, so don't neglect the cities. That's the place to deliver. That will be, I think, the outcome to me to COP26 in Glasgow. Thank you. And on, on that note, I would like to pivot more to your city work in Rotterdam. And I want to wish you a very hearty congratulations as you've just been awarded the London City Mayor's Foundation's honor as the best mayor in the world. And you're the first Dutch winner of the prize, which is really an accomplishment in the face of the challenges over the last two years as a local leader. And you've been mayor of Rotterdam since 2009. How has the city's approach to resilience, both social resilience and also climate adaptation changed on your watch? And what accomplishments are you most proud of? Uh, we are proud that the uh, awareness in the city uh, that working on resilience and climate-related uh, issues is re really gaining uh, support from citizens, which is really uh, important. People are aware that the quality of the air, having enough uh, well-constructed uh, dikes and levees um, to uh, maintain what we call dry feeds, really important for for the future. And the, the awareness, I think, if you ask me which is the best result, is that we gain the awareness. If the earth is the awareness, then the programs and the money will follow. You've been such a strong advocate of inclusive and diverse communities. And we, we spoke earlier about that need to really speak to people in that language that they understand. And you, you shared a beautiful quote from the Quran. How can city leaders do a better job in terms of supporting authentic citizen engagement? And how can building community resilience contribute to a more resilient city overall? How do we place value on that kind of community cohesion that so many cities are having difficulty really grounding? Well, you know what I discovered last 12 years working in a political system, which is a city council and a city government, and then lobbying the national government. What I discovered is that working in that system is inevitably that it's taking time because you have meetings with the city council, with the city government. You are a lot of time, a lot of hours a day in the city hall. But really what makes difference is leaving the city hall and leaving the political system and seeking for support among citizens working in the neighborhoods, walking in the neighborhoods. I work one way a day in one of the neighborhoods that's really vulnerable. So I spend a day, in, uh, a week there, um, so a neighborhood with some 20,000 citizens. I walk through the streets, I enter the cafes, knock on the doors and talk to people about really what makes life complicated for them and how 
I can support them uh, to get out of poverty, to get jobs, to live safe, to uh, deploy enough uh, uh, police and surveillance cameras and to work on green capacity in the city, um, parks and trees and uh, and sidewalks, huge sidewalks that are really paved, but how to remove all this uh, stuff from there and to replace them by green spaces. Working with citizens day by day in, in the neighborhoods, that makes a difference. Although a political system means also that you have to be uh, involved in the political systems. That's giving you a background, but the front work is with citizens in that. So my advice to make leagues, leave the city hall, go to the street. Get out there, understand your citizens and speak to them. On a different Rotterdam-related note, you have a, a city that has some really fascinating architecture. And adding to that fascinating architecture is now uh, the newly inaugurated global headquarters for the Global Center on Adaptation, where you also serve on the board. And this is now the largest floating office building in the world. What does this structure represent for the future of building urban resilience? You know, the building, uh, that office, the way we did as a floating office, it was my idea just to show the world that it is possible to live with water. So instead of um, um, building um, uh, four dikes um, uh, and then within the four dikes building uh, a protected office, that's the way we did it in the past. But the new technology make it possible to build a floating office that is really going up and down with the tides. And um, we have houses built like that in the eastern part of the of, of the city. You know, when I watch the, the documentaries about the Far East, for instance, the Philippines, where they have a huge amount of uh, people living from fishery, and then they have such uh, wooden houses um, uh, uh, not far from, from the beach, sometimes built into the water on wooden pillars just to escape the, the flooding. Um, that's really vulnerable. And, and every year, a lot of these houses collapse, and a lot of casualties every year. Well, what we did here is to show, this is a showcase, to show the world that you can build such a small house uh, in a less vulnerable manner, uh, maybe for eight or $10,000 for such a fisherman family in the Philippines, for instance. This is an ambitious, big office building, sure, modern, fitting within the context of Rotterdam. But you may also build it on smaller scale to feed the fishermen in the Philippines. So this is a showcase how even... Uh, countries that are not really rich and don't have enough of resources to build sufficient, decent houses near or on the water, nevertheless being less vulnerable to the water. That's what we call living with water instead of fighting water. You cannot fight water because you will never win from Mother Nature. Absolutely. And and so to build a structure that can be in Rotterdam to show that cutting-edge technology can also be scaled to different contexts and brought to emerging markets. Correct. Well, thank you for the time. I think it's been an inspiring interview from cutting edge technology and hard hitting policy recommendations to very, very approachable recommendations to get out there with citizens on the ground and stay true to their wishes and to help them build resilience from the ground up. Thank you so much, Mira Wutaleb, for being with us again. And I'll see you very soon. Rotterdam is a city that's making great strides, yet remains a significant polluter with five refineries. 
Mayor Abutaleb's commitment to working closely with industry, national government and the local community means the whole ecosystem is working together to transition to a more sustainable future. In the next episode of Urban Exchange, we hear Jeff Rizzo, Chief Innovation Officer at GEL, talking to Glasgow Council leader Susan Aitken about urban design for a sustainable future. <laughs>